you would turn in your New Testaments with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians, the first chapter, we'll be studying from a portion of Scripture there this morning. Ephesians chapter 1. We'll be studying from Luke chapter 11 in the Bible class, and that chapter begins with a disciple of Jesus asking him, after he had spent some time in prayer, to teach them to pray, teach the disciples to pray. And Jesus would give a model prayer and explain the need for our persistence in prayer and petitioning our Father and the fact that He will give us the things that we need, the things that we ask for, the things that we desire. That prayer is a constant part of a Christian's life is quite evident as we study throughout the entirety of the Bible. Disciples of God, of Christ, those men and women of faith who lived for God's will relied upon their communication with the Father. And we certainly cannot expect to be successful in our lives of faith without exercising our faith in prayer to God. And you see that especially in the life of the Apostle Paul, not only in his personal prayers, for example, like in Acts the 16th chapter when we see him being persecuted and he is in the prison in Philippi, he is praying and he is singing songs and he is rejoicing. His prayer got him through that time. When, when Peter was put into prison in Acts chapter 12 and then James was murdered, the disciples were constant in prayer. And you see that throughout Scripture, as I mentioned. And a lot of times what we do, at least I can say speaking for myself, is that we make the mistake of leaving out spiritual petitions for ourselves and for each other in our prayer. And we certainly see in the model prayer that we'll study in Bible class that our daily necessities of a physical nature are certainly worthy of prayer. We need to ask God for those necessities and we need to ask for His protection and provision. And He's told us that He will provide for us. And in chapter 12 of Luke, we'll talk about how we need not worry about the things that we rely upon and need on a daily basis because God is going to provide that for those who seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And so it is very prudent and appropriate for us to pray for the physical necessities. But I would suggest to you that as we are spiritual beings who are living life in an elevated fashion as we are seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus as members of His kingdom, that our primary focus in our personal prayer life as we open up our hearts to God and pray to Him through Jesus should be spiritual. And when we are praying for each other, I believe that we should pray for the physical things, certainly, but that that should pale in comparison to the volume of our prayers being on spiritual matters, praying for our growth, praying for our hope, praying for our faith, praying for our transformation. And in the Apostle Paul's epistles, we certainly see that is the case. There are certainly times where there are physical considerations that are mentioned throughout the epistles. But overwhelmingly, the Apostle Paul's focus is on the spiritual. And that's no different when we come to Ephesians, the first chapter. We're very familiar with the epistle, especially chapter 1 and verses 3 through 14, which constitute one sentence in the Greek, 
where Paul is speaking of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and he enumerates several of them. He wants the Ephesians to know the blessedness of their being part of this kingdom of God, of them being in Christ. And the first three chapters manifest the wonders of God's mystery that is revealed by the apostle through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And then applies that in chapter 4, 5, and 6 about the transformed life we should live as we seek to glorify God in the church as members of His kingdom. But I want us to notice in verse 15, beginning, the Apostle Paul, as he customarily does, and as he'll do again in the third chapter, breaks into a description to the Ephesians of a prayer that he would pray consistently on their behalf. He says in verse 15, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you making mention of you in my prayers. And so obviously he always is thankful to God for those who have obeyed the gospel, those of his brethren. But notice in verse 17, he moves from thanksgiving to God for them to uh, supplication and intercession on their behalf. He says in verse 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe. We'll pause there now and, and we'll look at the rest in just a moment in our lesson for this hour. But I want us to especially focus in on that petition of the Apostle Paul on their behalf. He wants them, he says, to be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And then he specifies the details and content of that wisdom and revelation that he wants them to be characterized by. He talks about knowing the hope of his calling, knowing the riches of the glory of the inheritance in the saints, and knowing the power that is exceedingly great that works in them who believe. And I want to suggest to you that what this does is it forms an ascension for these brethren to grow in, for these brethren to become more acquainted with God. The content of this prayer is about their spiritual progression. The fact that as those who have been added to the body of Christ and who dwell in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that they're progressing towards something greater, ever progressing. It's a constant progression. We sing a song from time to time that talks about how we're pressing on the upward way and new heights we're gaining every day. And we're praying as we go onward and our prayer and our aim is higher ground. And that's essentially what the Apostle Paul is praying about here. He's saying, my prayer for you is that you reach that higher ground. My prayer for you is that your understanding of God's plan for you, of these blessings that he just enumerated in the first half of chapter 1, and not just for their fact knowledge of it, but for their familiarity with it in a very intimate fashion of practical living, would grow exponentially each day they progress and that they would then make it to heaven by the power of God. And brethren, that's a prayer we should make for ourselves and for each other 
And it's something that we should have as a goal each and every day. But I think it's beneficial to us to break it down and understand exactly what constitutes this prayer of Paul on behalf of the Ephesian brethren. A prayer for ascending wisdom. I want us to notice first that his prayer is for them to be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That word spirit, I think, is in reference to a disposition. I'll explain why. Throughout the New Testament, we see that word used not just in reference to the Holy Spirit, but to a disposition. And in fact, the definite article is not here in the Greek. And so it could more accurately be translated a spirit of wisdom and revelation. For example, in 1 Corinthians 4 and Galatians 6, it speaks of a spirit of gentleness. It's not speaking of the Holy Spirit there. In Romans 8 and verse 15, it speaks of a spirit of bondage and then a spirit of adoption. And then we read of a spirit of fear, power, love, and a spirit of a sound mind in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7. And in all those passages, it's abundantly clear that he's referring to a disposition, an attitude that is marked by whatever it is, the quality that is mentioned after that. And so a spirit of gentleness would be a disposition of gentleness. When you say a person has a spirit of gentleness, their character is marked by gentleness. They are a person of gentleness. They are inclined to gentleness. And so it is in regard to this spirit of bondage or spirit of adoption. Their, their character is marked by slavish fear is the context rather than what should be marked by a, a confident spirit or disposition as a child of God or a spirit of fear in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7 rather than a, a spirit or a disposition and attitude marked by the power of God's will and the love that we have culminated in us or, or cultivated in us through it and the sound mind that we have. And so when he talks about his prayer for them is for a spirit of wisdom and revelation, he's speaking about his wish for them, his petition to God on their behalf for a character, uh, an attitude, a uh, persona, if you will, of that which is marked by wisdom and revelation. They need to be a people of the book is essentially what he's saying. They need to be people that it's evident their lives are molded by the will of God. They're, they're in tune with divine wisdom. That's not necessarily miraculously accomplished either. He's not praying that the Holy Spirit would come upon them and infuse them with divine power that is unexplainable and mystical and mysterious. He's praying that through their diligence, God would meet them where they're meeting Him and they would grow in their wisdom and knowledge of what has been revealed to them from on high. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is therefore profitable for doctrine, for reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness. And he goes on to say that the man of God may be equipped or, or complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's essentially what he's saying here. His prayer for them is that through the will of God, they'd be equipped having the wisdom of God, having their hearts filled with His revelation, where, where there are people guided by the Word of God. They're in tune with the Holy Spirit's instruction. I want us to notice what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 when he's talking about the revelation of the Holy Spirit, specifically germane to the inspiration of the Apostles, but 
by extension to us as we are following the inspired word. And I want us to notice what he says in verse 15 as he's been demonstrating that some people don't receive that wisdom. They think it's foolishness. They're not interested in it. They think it's folly. He says, in contrast to that, those natural men that cannot receive it because they're spiritually discerned, he who is spiritual, the one who has a spiritual mind, who is inclined to the spiritual revelation as they're seeking spiritual truth, he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one, and he gives the reason why he judges all things. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ through the revelation of the apostles' doctrine. And so what he's saying is that when we make judgments of all things in life, we as Christians are doing it by what God has said in His will. And so our judgments are accurate. And so these people of the world have rejected the revelation of God and they make a judgment on the way we may be living our life. And their judgment is that's foolish, but that's not accurate. When we make a judgment that it's better to go without so that we can gain what is hidden and what is not seen, what is spiritual and eternal. That judgment is accurate. We've made a proper evaluation because we're being guided by the infallible will of God. That's what he's saying here in Ephesians 1. I want you to be accurate in your judgments. I want you to be accurate in your actions and the way you think and the way you carry about yourselves in life. I want you to be marked by the wisdom and revelation of God. These are not two separate things, but they are related. It is the wisdom which comes from God's revelation. He explained in chapter 3 and in verse 3 of Ephesians, by revelation, God made known to Paul the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. He'd say in chapter 5 and verse 17, do not be unwise but understand what the will of the Lord is in a context of applying what is understood, of finding out what the will of the Lord is, and therefore being children of light and bearing the fruit of light, walking in the light and imitating God. And so when he says you want, he wants them to have this disposition marked by wisdom and revelation, he's talking about not just their fact knowledge of God's revelation, but that knowledge applied accurately. Wisdom, that's how we describe it sometimes. Knowledge that is accurately and effectively applied. He wants them to really be in tune with the will of God. Not just be scholars of it intellectually, but be disciples of it and walk according to it. In Colossians chapter 1, he prays a similar prayer in regard to the growth and the knowledge of God's will. In verse 9 of Colossians 1, he says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will. And we'll notice the same word used in Ephesians 1. It's epinosis. It's a participant knowledge. He says the participant knowledge of His will. And, and how does that happen? It's in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. When, when you gain wisdom from God's will, and you have a, an understanding of the spiritual as God is guiding you in it by His will, then you will be growing in that practical, active knowledge of Jesus, which is what he goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 1. 
I want you to have this disposition, this character marked by wisdom and revelation of God. And and what that is essentially in is in imitation of Jesus. That's what it's all about. The, The blessings, every spiritual blessing is in the heavenly places in Christ. In Him, we find that phrase throughout Ephesians chapter 1. And so he's not asking for them to turn back to the old law. He's specifying that it's Christ here. That's where you're going to find this wisdom. That's where you're going to find this this revelation and understanding. That's where you're going to grow in this, in Jesus. And again, as I mentioned, this knowledge is not just intellectual. It's, It's not just factual. He's wanting them to have a fuller knowledge, an experiential knowledge. It's... It's the difference between just knowing about Christ and Christ living in them. That's what his prayer for them is. I want you to be assimilated with what you're reading about Christ in the New Testament. As he is the word that became flesh and the way he acted, the way he thought, the way he spoke, everything he did was marked by eternal wisdom because he is eternal wisdom incarnate. So I want you to imitate that. I want you to act that way. I want you to live your life that way. I want God to bless you with that kind of experience and knowledge in Jesus. We recently studied from 1 John chapter 2 that he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked, to keep his commandments for the word of God to abide in him. That's essentially Paul's prayer here. But there's something specific about it. He's He's wanting them to live in that way, to, to have all their actions, all their decisions, all their thoughts molded by and characterized by this wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Jesus. But that's going to be related to their goal. That's going to be related to their trajectory. They're, they're pressing on to higher ground, as we alluded to with that song. And so it's an ascending wisdom, and that's what he essentially describes there, beginning in verse 18. I want you to notice first that he mentions in regard to the specific aspect, topic of this wisdom and revelation, he wants their lives to be characterized by, to be molded by, to be motivated by and instructed by. He wants them to know what is the hope of his calling. He doesn't specify what the content and object of that hope is until the next phrase. And so I I don't want us to get ahead of ourselves. Essentially what he's saying is I want you to know that in the calling with which you've been called, he says in chapter 4, you need to walk worthy of that calling. That calling to discipleship, to holiness, to Christianity, to to rigorous living within this, this law of Christ that has been disclosed to you through the Holy Spirit. It has hope involved. There's there's a goal involved. There's an end to this. There's something to look forward to. It's not meaningless. It's not empty. It's not void. It's not mindless. And I want us to see that in regard to the people that he's writing to in this great epistle of Ephesians. You notice in the first chapter, there's a lot of vacillation between we and us and and you and and it's especially noticed in verse 12 of chapter 1 when he talked about we have obtained an inheritance he said in verse 12 that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory 
And then he kind of shifts that in verse 13 by saying, in him you also. And the implication is you also trusted. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. He'd go on to then from that point talk about how I heard of your faith and I'm praying for you. And then in chapter 2, he'd also mention the fact that he is reminding them of where they were. But then he adds there in Ephesians chapter 2 in verse 3, among whom we also, also we all once conducted ourselves. So not just you were living this way, but we also were. And so there's, there's kind of two groups that seem to be coming out in Ephesians chapter 1. I think we can further understand it with that particular verse in verse 12 of chapter 1. He says that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. First trusted is one word in the Greek. It is pro-elpizo. Elpizo is the word translated hope. And pro is before. And so it literally means to hope in advance of other confirmation before and to hope to be prior and hoping their hope is prior to realization. But I want to suggest to you as we turn to chapter two in verses um, 11 through 13, that the, the concept here is further elaborated when he tells the Gentiles specifically that remember when you were Gentiles in the flesh, you were called uncircumcision in verse 12. Notice you were without Christ. You are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. And notice here, as we're talking about how he wants them to know what is the hope of his calling. At that time, you had no hope and were without God in the world. You notice in chapter 1, in verse 12, he said, We you first trusted in Christ. And he says, You were without Christ, chapter 2 and verse 12. But then he says in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus... You who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I think what he's saying in verse 12 is that we Jews first trusted in the Messiah. The covenant was given to us. Everything about the Messiah was authored to us and given to us and gifted to us. And so you were without Christ. You weren't under the old law. You didn't have the revelation of, of the messianic promises and, and that kind of hope you were without but when Christ came and Jesus showed himself to be the Christ, and he obviously included the Gentiles, you who were far off were brought near. And so before you were without hope, but now you also having trusted in Christ, specifically Jesus Christ, you have hope. And it completely blossoms what he's praying for them to have in Ephesians 1 and verse 18. He wants them to know what it's like to have hope. He wants them to know that this calling of Christ to live in a certain way, to, to abstain from immorality that you were involved in as a pagan, to abstain from idolatry and this way of walking in darkness, as difficult as it may be, as, as much change as it takes, as much sacrifice as it requires, this is what it is to live with hope. You have something to look forward to. You're hoping in something. In 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 14, the Apostle Paul said this about our call in the gospel. He said in 2 Thessalonians 2, 14, He called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout the study of Jesus' ministry, we've been noticing that the gospel is revealed in such a fashion and its very content is to such a degree 
that it requires sacrifice and therefore it thins the herd. Only the people who really want truth and really want salvation will follow it. Others don't think it's worth it. And what Paul is saying is, is I want you to come into a, a greater acquaintance with the fact that involved in this life that you're living now as a Christian, with all its attendant sacrifices and trials and tribulations and persecutions, is infused with expectation of something better. There's so many people in this world that live each day completely without expecting something beyond what they see with their physical eye. We wonder why there's so much immorality. We wonder why there's so much hatred and sorrow and depression and anguish. And it's because people are living their lives without hope. Why do you go to work every day? Why do you cash that paycheck? Why do you roll out of bed every morning? It's just to continue in the same old rat race you've been continuing in. Because when you die, you're going the same place the animals go. You return to the dust of the earth. And, and people that don't have an expectation of something beyond that are miserable. And he's saying that's not how you are as a Christian. I want you to know what you're doing has meaning. And we need to understand that. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul speaks about that hope. And he speaks about how if we have no hope, we are of all men the most pitiable in verse 19. If in this life only we have hope. And, and he shows what that looks like. If, if you don't have hope, if you're living without expectation of something beyond this physical life, he says, if the dead do not rise, verse 32, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There's nothing to live for here. But if you're living with hope, if you realize there's something beyond this, then you awake to righteousness and do not sin. Then, verse 58, you can be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. In Romans 8 and verse 25, he says you can have perseverance if you have hope. Where other people are struggling on a daily basis to even continue on, it's because they have nothing to look forward to. But he's telling these brethren, you do. And if you are to actually find that higher ground, if you were to actually reach heaven, you've got to live this life as if it is not what this is all about. It's about something beyond. And he hadn't specified it yet. But if we just lived as a people of hope, regardless of what the hope was, we live with expectation. There's something beyond this. We would sacrifice more. We would endure more. We would have more joy, especially though when we understand the object of that hope. He doesn't just want them to know this, this vague, unspecified concept of living with hope. You know, that hope may be for a promotion in your job. That hope may be for finding a spouse. That hope may be for children. That hope may be for a, a larger bank account or a good retirement to rest with. But then when we specify what that hope is, and we know Paul's not talking about any of those things, then it kind of transforms furthermore how we will be people living for something beyond based on what that thing is. If I'm going to hope to be a doctor, I will be studying daily to understand the human body and medicine and so on and so forth. If I'm hoping for a certain profession, I will 
infuse my life with the knowledge of that profession so that I can reach it someday. And so I'll be a person that is characterized by that profession. I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I'm being driven by that expectation and being driven in this specific manner. But when my hope is of an eternal inheritance, that's going to change the way I live. Not just hoping to hope. I'm hoping for something specific. And so I want us to notice that he calls it an inheritance there. And inheritance right away shows us as something of value. But he says, I want you to know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance. And inheritance is already valuable. But he says this inheritance is of glory, which shows it's even more valuable. And so glory describes the inheritance. Inheritance is already valuable. Glory makes it more valuable. And then the riches of the glory of this inheritance describes it even furthermore. And all he's doing is using this language to express that what we hope in is a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, as he put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17, or 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 17. This is an incredible inheritance that God has blessed you with the hope of. Peter describes it in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 as that which is a living hope. And he says in verse 4, it is an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So you're hoping for a job, you're hoping for a, a new car, you're hoping for something of this physical life. Well, when you get it, it'll eventually disappoint you because it is corruptible. It is defiled. It does fade away, but not this, not this inheritance. So you're living for something that's worth it. That's of immense wealth. You notice the, the further connection of it there, though. He says in verse 3 of 1 Peter 1, that it is a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's important. That, that tells us a little bit more about this hope and this inheritance. And we go back to 1 Corinthians 15 to see that. And what way is this through the resurrection of Christ? And what way is it associated with the resurrection of Christ? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that Christ is risen from the dead, verse 20, and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, even so all shall be in Christ, all shall be made alive. Each, uh, each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Afterward, those who are Christ that is coming. He's saying because Christ raised from the dead, you have the confidence of this inheritance. And it also tells us what the inheritance specifically is. Right there in 1 Corinthians 15, he speaks of it as being a spiritual body. That's your inheritance. The resurrection of the dead, it's sown in corruption, verse 42, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory. There's that glory of Ephesians 1 and verse 18. The riches of the glory of this inheritance. It's sown in natural body, raised a spiritual body. And all of this, verse 50, is because flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. And so your inheritance is a body that is immortal, that is eternal, that is glorious and fit for the place of God's dwelling. I want to tell you something. If we're a people that are living as if we expect something superior in the future, and that something is a glorious body that is conformed to the resurrected glory of our Lord, it's going to dramatically change the way we think, the way we act, and the way we carry on 
in our daily life. And this is what John mentioned in 1 John chapter 3. He's speaking here about the inheritance that we're blessed to be called children of God. But he says in verse 2, it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. There's the hope, shall be, it's future. But we do know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. So we can't picture it in our mind, but what we do know is it's a glorious body. We know it's an incorruptible body. As Jesus was reacquainted with His glorious pre-incarnate form, you'll be like Him in that pre-incarnate form with a spiritual body. So what, John? He says, everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself just as He is pure. You understand what Paul's saying there? I want you to live like there's something beyond this life. Not just anything though. I want you to live like there's purity and righteousness beyond this life as you inhabit that eternal body that is fit for heaven. I want you to live for heaven. And as Peter said in 2 Peter 3 and verse 13, that's where righteousness dwells. Do you understand that? Paul is asking God on behalf of the Ephesians and us to fill us with that kind of acquaintance with what lies before us, what we hope in. And and if we really want heaven, if we really want to be with Jesus, that's going to translate into a life of holiness, of purity, of towing the line of Christ's law, of His gospel. It's not going to be with with a grudging necessity in our spirit, but with a joyful, privilege-based experience. I, I get to live this way because that's what hope is. It's something I'm eager about. It's something that I'm looking forward to. We need to be a people characterized by joy in our purity and in our holiness. That's the joy of a Christian. But He ascends further upward. I realize that there's something beyond this life. I'm ascending and I'm going to live like there's something beyond this life. And that something beyond this life is an incorruptible, glorious, and pure body that I will inhabit. I'll be like Christ, so I need to live like Christ now. I'm ascending upward as I live in the spiritual place of Christ Jesus. But then He says, I want you to know what is the exceeding greatness of His power who works in you, who believe. And so you've got the concept of hope in a vague sense. I've got something to look forward to. You've got the object of hope. What a wonderful and glorious thing. Something I need to live in a purity because I'm expecting and I'm living for it. But how is that going to happen? How am I going to reach that goal? How am I going to get there? He wants them to know that they're not in it by themselves. He wants them to know that this higher ground that seems impossible to reach is possible to reach with God. That's what he's saying here. I don't want to just give you this hope and dangle it before you without giving you the ability to actually reach it. I want you to know that you can do it. I want you to know that with God's help, His power, you can reach that higher ground. You need to know that though. I want, you to, I want you to be grounded in faith in that concept. Have some confidence that you can live the transformed life. But you know, he doesn't just give an abstract concept of this. He gives some examples of this power at work. There's something happened in history, Ephesians, 
That greatness of God's power is according to the working of His mighty power when He raised Christ from the dead. And He didn't just raise Him from the dead. That's powerful enough. But He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. And He didn't just seat Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. But He seated Him far above principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age, but that which is to come. And He put all things under His feet. You see that progression? The power that works in you. I want you to know just how powerful it is. It's the power that raised Christ from the dead, that seated Him at the right hand of God in heaven, gave Him all authority, and put everything under His feet. It didn't just work in Christ's resurrection, though. It worked in your resurrection. He says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. And then He picks up in verse 5, that even when we were dead in trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up together and made us sit together. He's telling them that if God can raise Christ from the dead with His power, He raised you from the spiritual dead with His power, then He certainly can get you to the object of that hope. That's the power that works in you. And you notice that He says He wanted them to know the exceeding greatness of the power of God toward us who believe. That's in the present active sense. It didn't just appear in the resurrection of Christ and go away. It didn't just appear in your baptism when you're raised to walk in newness of life and then go away. That power is something you can still tap into. God is still trying and actively working in you as you believe His Word, as you walk by faith. You notice back in 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 5, he explained how we'd reach that inheritance that we were born again unto. You are kept by the power of God. That's what he's talking about in Ephesians 1. He'll keep you by His power. You'll get to it. He'll guard you until you receive your reward. He keeps us by the power of God. But notice the avenue. Notice the instrument that He utilizes to keep us by His power. Through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. That's the power of God to salvation. And so what He's telling them is that God has immense, unfathomable power that can get you to your reward. And if it's based in God and it's, it's up to Him, it's going to happen. But you got to understand how that works. He keeps you by His power through faith. And so you've got to add to that. You've got to grow in faith as you live by the gospel, which is why Peter, when he's telling them to grow in grace, he talks about how the calling and election will be made sure. You'll never stumble and an abundant entrance will be supplied to you in the everlasting kingdom. I want you to know who's on your side, but I also want you to understand how that works. It's a cooperative effort. You need to grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see the ascension of that? I want you to live like people with hope. This life is not what it's all about. This life is a trial. It's a testing ground for the next life. I want you to live like this earth is not all that there is. I want you to live for the unseen. And the unseen is this pure and righteous body, which means the way that you're living on this temporal world is in purity and holiness. You're letting Christ live in you. I want you to fully be aware of that. And, and how are you going to do that? How are you going to reach the standard that is so lofty set by the perfect life of Christ? 
the power of God and His gospel. That's the guide. That's Christ revealed. I want you to be characterized by the wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Jesus. And and this is what it will amount to. You won't be living for here. You'll be living for the place where righteousness dwells. And you'll be living by faith in God who empowers you to get there. Oh, that we would pray for each other in that way. And that we would respond to such a prayer on our behalf. That we would understand these things and live for eternity. Before we dismiss to our classes, we'll be led in a word of closing prayer.